Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Um, we're in this series called The Summer on the Mountain. We've just been kind of going through um, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, there's this guy named Dallas Willard, and he said, he, by the way, he was a, a philosopher. He was a, one of the great Christian minds uh, in history, honestly. Um, he's passed on. He was a philosopher at USC. Um, he said that there are four great questions in life that everybody has to uh, grapple with on some level, um, whether they want to or not. Um, the questions are, um, what, what's real? What, what's reality? And what is the good life? And the third question is, who, who is a good person? And the fourth question is, how, how do you become a good person? And, and he said that everybody has to answer those questions, whether you, whether you intend to, whether you mean to or not, you do it by how you live your life, by the way you live your life. Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying, gives us the answer to all four of these uh, questions. When it comes to what's real and what you can count on, Jesus says it's not all the things that you see around you. It's the kingdom of God up there coming down here. He says that's what you're going to be able to count on. And as we get older, as we start to realize that the things we put our hope in, that we chase in life, they really don't last. They rust. They decay. Jesus says they they get eaten by things. They get stolen. And the bottom line is no matter what you acquire from this life when you die, you can't take any of it with you. And the only reality, the only true reality is what God is doing, what he's, he's up to in, in the world. Then he answers the question of what is a good life. Jesus gives us that answer in, in the Beatitudes, which we heard from Pastor Andy in week one. The good life, as Jesus describes, is not based on how much money you have. It's not based on your IQ. It's not based on all of the things that we tend to assume constitute the good life. What he says, in fact, is that it's available to anyone. The good life is available to anyone who will choose to follow Jesus, choose to make Jesus Lord of their lives and, and partner with God in bringing up there, down here. And, and, and so it's available to anyone. Anyone can be blessed. Anyone can be happy, as some translations have that word blessed there. So, so what's a good person? Jesus answers that um, in, our, in our teaching from last week. We get it wrong in our day a lot of times, but Jesus will say that a good person is someone who loves God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves. That's what Jesus would say constitutes a a good person, those two great commandments. A person who is orienting their lives around willing the good for the people uh, uh, around them. And and, and he said from from our text last week, it's not a person who follows all the rules. It's not a person who breaks the rules. It's, it's the people who simply decide to follow Jesus. God is focused on the heart of people, right? And we're going to see this all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. God wants to transform the inner life of people who choose to follow him. He doesn't focus like we do on behavior modification. He knows that, that true goodness, godliness flows from within, not from without. And today he's gonna show us how good people, people who love God with their heart, mind, soul, strength, and love their neighbor as much as themselves, he's gonna show us how they relate to other people. And I wanna set up today's text 
um, because it's much too long for me to deal with in its entirety. There's six illustrations that Jesus gives us. Honestly, this is a sermon series all by itself, and I'm not going to tackle all six of them today. You're welcome, all right? I'm going to tackle the first one. But I want to give you some principles. Um, the way I'm describing is some lenses um, that, with which you can put on and look at what Jesus says in, in these verses here to, to help make sense, to give you context. There is this book, I don't remember the name of it, by, by a man named Michael Novak, um, one, of the, one of the brightest men, honestly, who's ever lived, probably 20 books, was kind of an atheist at one point, and then has a heart transformation, gives his life to Jesus, and he begins to write about government and economics and worldviews and religion through the lens of what Jesus has done in his heart. And, and he talks about convictions, uh, in this book. And, and he gives us three. And I, I've given them here before, but I, I want to give them to you again because they provide a good lens for us to study this text with. He talks about public convictions. And he says that these are the kind of convictions that we want people to think that we believe, right? So whether we actually believe them or not, I, I would call these chameleon uh, convictions. They come out depending on which circle we're hanging out with. Like if we're at church, this is what I think. This is how I act. If we're in our small group, if we're at work, if we're hanging around with our boys from back in the day, come on, there's chameleon convictions. Um, we, we say, these are things that we say for like PR purposes. Politicians, as we all know, are really bad about this. They'll, they don't actually believe some of the things that come out of their mouths, but they know that their political base believes them. And so they want their vote. So they say it. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about? All right, four people do. All right, there, there are, there are come on, I'm kidding. There are private convictions, right? There's public convictions. There are private convictions, which are beliefs or convictions that I think I believe, but sometimes pressure, crisis, struggles have a way of proving to me that I didn't actually believe them. An example from the Bible is when Jesus is about to die and he tells his followers, all of you, all of you guys are going to betray me and run away and hide. And, and what does Peter, his, his most robust disciple say? He says, absolutely not. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. Now, when Peter says this, is he being sincere? Yeah, of course he is. He believes that he's a hundred percent committed to Jesus. Was it true? No. He immediately ran away and denied him and didn't follow him. So a private conviction, I think I believe it until pressure comes, and then I find out that I didn't actually believe it at all. And then the third one, which is the one we're leaning into heavy today, is core convictions. This is what Novak calls this, core convictions. And this is your ideas about the way things actually are. This is the way you see reality, and you don't, vi this is, uh, let me say it this way, this is our worldview, the lens through which we look of all of life through. And you never tend to violate the way you think things are. For, for instance, a core conviction for me is I believe in gravity. Can I get a witness on that, everybody, right? I believe in gravity. It's part of my way. I don't challenge it. I don't try to disprove it. I know it that if I step off of a high building, I'm going to get hurt. Come on, you know what I'm saying? Do you guys believe in gravity? Yes, yeah, seven. All right, I hope the rest of you all actually do, all right? This is a core conviction. I don't have to think about it as I'm walking through life. It just orchestrates my beliefs. Does that make sense? Um, core convictions are the idea, your ideas about the way things are. So then our, our behaviors, our choices, our decisions in life uh, fundamentally come from our core convictions about the way things are. Meaning that if I'm going to change 
the things about my life that I don't like, I'm gonna have to start with my core convictions. Public, private, and core convictions. My, my public convictions often prove to be bogus. My private convictions often prove to be fickle. But my core convictions determine the way I live my life. In other words, there's the stuff I say I believe, there's the stuff I think I believe, and then there's the stuff that I reveal I actually believe by the way I live my day-to-day life. So, so the thing is, if our public and private convictions were core convictions, we would most likely live in a totally different way than we actually do. Does that make sense? So this is why I believe that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but whose lives never get changed over time in the way that Jesus intended. They want people to believe they believe and follow Jesus. They think they believe and what they believe, but it never shows up in how they actually live their lives. And some people have written books about this, calling this Christian atheism. I believe in God, but I live as though he doesn't actually exist. I believe in Jesus, but I don't actually do anything that he called on us to do. Christian atheism. Jesus comes along, teaches the Sermon on the Mount and other passages like it, and like any great teacher would, what do you think Jesus is most interested in? Our public or our private or our core convictions? Core. Core convictions, of course. Jesus arrives to announce the kingdom of God. Up there has come down here, and for the first time in human history, there is a man who is walking among the people who has absolute congruence between uh, what he says, what he thinks and feels in private, and how he actually lives his life. Perfect harmony. It's, it's what made him so magnetic to, to other people. He is who he says he is. He does exactly what he says he will. And the people have never seen anything like it to the extent that at the end of this teaching, they say they were amazed by him. Many came to admire him. And what Jesus was trying to do What he's still trying to do with the Sermon on the Mount is to change our core ideas about reality. What's real, what's not real, what's right, what's not right. Because the reason he's interested in core ideas is because this is what we live by. The Bible says that the righteous righteous live by faith, but the truth is the unrighteous also live by a set of ideas, right? Everybody does. So now, when the disciples began to follow Jesus, like physically follow him around. They began to listen to him teach. They began to listen to him preach. They saw him do some miracles. Now, here's the the caveat. They were following Jesus, but they were not yet followers of Jesus. They were physically following him. They weren't sure yet who he was. And John records in, in the first miracle that Jesus does, turning the water into wine, he says, it wasn't until that time that the Bible says that they put their faith in Jesus. They had, they, had the faith, they had faith in Jesus. But as they're hearing Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount, as they're following him around increasingly and they're listening to them, him, something begins to change inside of their hearts. Something happens to the core ideas. And to the extent that one day he says to them, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And so by the time that Acts has rolled around, which is the Acts of the Apostles, they, they, they have moved from having faith 
in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. Now hang with me because this is huge. So what that means then is that the way that things look to Jesus begin to be the way that, they, that, that, that things look to them. The, what, what they saw Jesus doing, how they saw Jesus interacting with people, started to shape the way they were interacting p- with people. What they saw Jesus do, they thought, hey, we can do what he did because he said we would do these things and greater things. What broke the heart of God, what moved Jesus with compassion, started to move their hearts with compassion. And so they say to themselves, whatever it costs, wherever I have to go, whatever I have to do, I will follow Jesus. I will live my life in service to him. And I believe that to my core, that, 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 that he has the words of eternal life. John, Peter will say this later on in John, and, and I will do what he says. And that's what he looking for from each one of us, that we begin to say who he is, what he's about, that's who I am, that's what I'm about. I'm going to get to the scriptures now. You're like, finally, bro, finally, you're there. Matthew 5, 20, I read this last week, but I didn't have a chance to deal with it. Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the scribes, you will, say this with me, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. To which I would say, oh, no. Come on. Right? This sounds terrible. Sounds ominous. Because we know the Pharisees are rule followers to the nth degree, right? They fast twice a week. They memorize the whole Bible. They never did anything wrong, so to speak. They had set a really high bar. And so I would think when I was younger, when I read this, I got no shot. Come on, come on honest people in the room, I got no chance. I have no, if, 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 if the greatest example of religious professionalism that the world has ever known of, of quote, holiness and purity, um, and Jesus says, unless you're way better at them at their own game, you can't you can't get in there. Like, so the immediate response to that then and now is if the Pharisees can't, aren't righteous enough, then I don't, who can get in? But I think what Jesus is not saying is that these religious leaders have a lot of righteousness and you need even more than they do. I think what he is saying is they don't have any righteousness at all, right? Not real righteousness, because the, the litmus test for righteousness is love God with heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They don't do either one of these things. Not really. They're following all the rules, but not with their hearts. They're doing it out of duty, and that's all. They don't love God at all, and they certainly don't love other people like themselves. And so the requirement Jesus was describing for entering into his kingdom was not so much a matter of degree or amount. It was kind. What kind of righteousness? And the kind of righteousness is not outward observances of the law. It was inward righteousness overflowing from a life that is transformed by the gospel, transformed by grace, that grace has flown, flowed down and now grace is flowing out. And Jesus teaches us this latter thing. The righteousness required to enter the kingdom came from what God's done in our hearts, not from showy external righteousness that we, we try to, to, to sort of which the Pharisees had in abundance, right? It's not that. And then Jesus will launch into six illustrations from the Old Testament, and he will deal with them in his own way. And I think the thing that we have to take away from these six illustrations is that Jesus intimately knows the human heart. 
He, he is aware of our brokenness. He is aware of our sicknesses and our proclivities towards doing the wrong things. He's aware of our heart level issues, our motivations, our affections, uh, our desires that, that are always beneath the surface. Um, he knows us, knows us. Which is, by the way, a fantastic thing. So, I'm gonna get to the text in just a moment. Again, the other part of the text, but let me say this now. See, this is what's always been true about Jesus. Jesus always pointed towards an ideal, but he gave grace for the real. Okay? He always said, like, here's the ideal, but he gives us grace for the real. Because the, in life there is the real and there's the ideal, but there's a gap, isn't there? I'm gonna stand up and say, my name is Danny, and oftentimes there is a gap between the, the ideal and the real in my life. Hello, Daniel. Thank there. Somebody knows where I'm at today. I'm just telling you that I'm still in progress, okay? There's a tension that exists between the real and the ideal. There's a gap, and Jesus taught and pointed towards an ideal. I don't want you to miss that. For instance, he'll say later in this same text, right, in, 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 in the same passage, hey, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody good on that one already? You got that down? Everybody with me on that? Like, yeah. Okay, right? Right? So he always points towards an ideal, and yet he, he, he doesn't condemn those Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You remember that? He doesn't condemn those who fell short of it. Because John describes Jesus. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, say it with me, and truth. Full of grace and, not grace or truth, full of, full of grace and truth. And so this is the dilemma. This is the paradox. And really the gospel is at the heart of the gospel that Jesus points towards an ideal. So in his teachings, he says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And in every case, he's pointing towards a high ideal, a bright North star. In every case, he's trying to cause people to raise their standards not lower them, not dumb them down. For, for instance, in the time of Jesus, in our passage here, he says, hey, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Uh, and everybody knows what that means. But he says, I'm gonna tell you, you've heard it said, but I'm gonna tell you, it's actually more than that. If you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, what does that do to every man who heard him say that? <laughs> Women... All of y'all are perfect, I'm sure, but there were some women that were going, we're gonna go this way, right? Everybody's an adulterer, right? The ideal is too great. Jesus, what are you gonna do to all of us who've committed adultery in our heart? How are we gonna be okay? And Jesus would say, I'm going to die for you and forgive you of all your sins. Amen. Really? Yes. So then, Jesus, which one is it? Is it the real or is it the ideal? It's both. The, the standard gets higher, the grace gets deeper. 
The, the standard got higher, the forgiveness becomes richer. And this is how Jesus worked. He was the perfect balance between grace and truth. But he always, everybody, he always points towards the ideal while giving grace for people who are in progress. Progress. And the question for us then, the way we have to grapple with this, is are we going to live in the tension of, of striving for the real, uh, uh, the ideal while we're in the real, or will we just concede everything that Jesus said ahead of time and be like, we can't do any of this? So then we alter reality, we alter truth to feel better about where we are right now. A version that is less than what it could be, where we just lose sight of Jesus' ideals and declare, whatever I decide to do is good enough. Is that the best way? No way. You see the tension Jesus creates here? The way of Jesus is different, everybody. It sounds weird when you compare what he says to the way the world works. And we will be tempted to shrink back from his way because it's counterintuitive and because he calls us up and he points us towards a bright North Star. In every realm of our life, he does this. Even in this passage, relationships, sexuality, marriage, money, the way we view the world, the way we treat other people. He gives us these six illustrations, and I'm just going to hit the first one, but my hope is that as you, that you'll take this text, and you'll wrestle with it in your own way, and you'll look at it through the lens of private, public, and, and core convictions. You'll look at it through the lens of ideal versus the real, but what you'll do is you'll be aware of your heart as you read it, and when you get uncomfortable comfortable in your chair and you say, well, sir, surely he didn't really mean that. Surely he didn't actually mean that. He did mean it. He did mean it. And I want us to be aware of what happens in our hearts. I have work to do in my life, everybody, because of what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, which is about behavioral compliance. He says, but I'm going to say to you, which is about inner transformation, heart level, soul level transformation. So Matthew 5, 21, finally, but I'm going to go fast. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you should not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You're like, yes, that's the right thing to do. Hang on to that. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, meaning he's tying anger to your brother and sister with murder. Yes or no? He's connecting these, right? Uh, he says, again, anyone who, who says to a brother or sister, racha, say that with me, come on, say it, racha. You just spit on the person in front of you, right? Is answerable to the court, and then he says this, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. <laughs> Therefore, if, you, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're doing religious deeds, and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, not you against them, but them against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Now, sometimes people will read the Sermon on the Mount. Many smart people do this and think, this is just a random collection of the sayings of Jesus. There's no order, there's no thoughtfulness here, but I don't think so. I think Jesus is very strategic in how he orders this and I think that he starts with anger first of the six illustrations from the Old Testament that he's gonna expound on. He, he's, he's taken anger as the number one thing because it has the capacity to become the number one obstacle in your life and mine to being more in love with Jesus and more in love with the people of the world in our, in, that are around us. If you look at the Bible from beginning to end, if you start with the first brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. If you think about Jacob and Esau, 
Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Esau wants to kill Jacob. If you think about Joseph and his brothers, they sell him into to slavery and, and, and assume he's going to die all the way through. If you look at even real life today, the National Center on Domestic Violence says that 20 people per minute are physically assaulted by an intimate partner. Look at, look at unpleasant workplaces. Some of you go, yeah, that's my place. Look at miserable marriages. Say nothing. Come on, somebody. All right. The, the vast majority of human wrongdoing involves, at some level, uh, anger and contempt. This is a real issue that Jesus brings up here. What's anger at its core? At its core? Well, if Jesus says, I'm bringing the kingdom of God down, what's going to get in the way of God's kingdom? My kingdom and your kingdom. Not, not in the world, but in my life. right? And so anger is when our will, our kingdom gets thwarted, anger is the immediate response. Does that make sense? The moment I don't get what I want, that I don't get my way, anger comes up. And the purpose of anger is to sort of wake us up to the fact that something's not right. But what happens is when anger is allowed to, to, to sort of resonate within our lives, it fully blooms. It immediately moves to, I have to remove or harm whatever is in my way. Come on, I know that none of you have ever done anything like this, but some of you are lying. Come on, right? Now, question Question, is this world that we inhabit, this space that we inhabit, is it set up to always please your will? Yes or no? No. You ever been to the DMV? Come on, somebody. Right? You ever go down to this HEB right here on Bandera Road? That place is jammed. I don't care what time of day, what year it is, what time of year, right? You have to park out in Afghanistan. It's 110, 120 index. You got to walk there. By the time you get to the door, you're exhausted, and then you got to wait in long lines, H-E-B, it rocks, all right? That's why it's packed all the time. I'm not, like, let me give you, like, let me give you an example from my own life. Yesterday, I took a break. I've been working on this all week. Yeah, I don't know if you know this. This is hard to teach, okay? Just FYI. If you're like, this brother, he didn't know what he's talking about. You're right. I'm trying to figure it out as I go, all right? So I'm taking a break from my efforts. Like, dear God, what am I going to say? You know, um, and my TV, I'm watching a show that I want to watch, and my TV is terrible. Uh, AT&T in my neighborhood, don't sue me, AT&T, doesn't work. And it was glitching, and it was getting stuck, and their faces were stuck in weird positions. And I flip back and forth. Finally, I, I throw the thing down, not really. It's like, stupid TV, walk away. It's really a smart TV, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I threw it under the bus. It's not the TV's fault that AT&T doesn't work in my neighborhood, right? Now, now it's funny until you realize the nature of anger is pretty soon it's not stupid TV or stupid car or stupid traffic, it's stupid person. And this is what Jesus is talking about here in this text. The problem is not that anger has aroused my emotion or that my will has been thwarted. The problem is now I want to harm another person, remove them in some way in word or deed. I want to believe that they're dumb or obnoxious or deserving of bad things. This is the progression that Jesus is describing when I indulge anger in my heart for another brother or sister. And that's the second dimension, dimension of anger. If, if the first is that, is that anger is the response to a thwarted will, the, the, the second is that anger moves quickly to wanting to harm somebody in some way or remove them, again, with words or deeds. And we have an infinite number of ways that we convey anger. Think about it. We, we, it's how we look at people. 
It's how we don't look at people. It's how we speak to somebody. It's how we stop speaking to somebody. It's how we touch them or we avoid touching them. Sarcasm, sabotage, forgetting, passive aggression, withdrawing, avoiding. All of these are ways that we express anger to a brother or sister. And remember, Jesus is after our hearts, not our external compliance. And so for Jesus, it's never okay to cease to will the good for another person. A brother or sister. That's what he said, never. So whenever I indulge anger, meaning I don't just get angry, I, I feed it in some way, I, 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 I caress it, come on, I, 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 I ruminate on it, I will tend to, I will tend to at least momentarily stop willing good for the person I'm angry with. And as soon as I stop willing good, which is not a feeling, but an action, then God's will is not being done in my life. And I've now chosen my kingdom over God's kingdom which is why this is such a serious thing that Jesus brings up. Indulged anger is dangerous because it justifies not willing good but harm for another person, right? And anger becomes contempt for other people. Okay, it's not there. Anger becomes contempt for other people. Now, here's what I want you to know. It starts to leak out of us right? Indulged anger doesn't stay buried within. It will leak out in my words. It will leak out in my deeds. It will leak out in my motivations, my intentions, my desires. And so Jesus gives us these two pictures. Verse 22, he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, right? Where you spit on somebody, right? Is answerable to the court. And anybody who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Racha was a serious insult. Somebody told me what it meant. Some reason I studied every word but that one. So somebody comes up to me, and because I've been saying it means something like worthless, but I didn't really actually know I was making it up. Come on, somebody, as I went along. And it means exactly that, worthless, right? It was a kind of way of spitting at somebody. Fool is a way of saying you're a piece of, you know, whatever, right? It's a way of saying to someone who is created in the image of God, who bears the imago Dei upon their soul, been stamped there by God himself, and saying to, that, that, that they're not good, that they're not created in the image of God, that they are worthless. Indulged anger always moves us towards contempt, and contempt is what Jesus is talking about here. I want you to realize that Jesus is not here giving us new rules. He is illustrating what it means when you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when you begin to love your neighbor as yourself, that, that God is doing inner work in your, in, in your heart. Not immediately. He does it over time as he's sanctifying us. He's making us more like, more like Jesus. He's showing us what it looks like to have an aim, a heart that's pervaded by, by love to will the good for another person. This is inside-out goodness. This is fruit of the Spirit being b blooming in my life, enabling me to do what instinctively, what natively I cannot do on my own. The Spirit of God is working inside of me. It's surpassing goodness. And listen, I said this last week, but you cannot, you cannot eliminate sin, or in this case, anger, by trying to avoid it. Anger, come on, anger eats behavior modification for breakfast. Pours cereal like, out like cereal. And some of you have lived with angry people. Some of you have been the victim of angry people and you know they cannot, by sheer willpower alone, transform their lives. Something has to do it for them. 
And if we don't deal with this, if, if the gospel of Jesus does not transform us, if grace doesn't have a flow about it where it flows down and then flows out to other people, then sin will be present and will triumph and sneak out of us in a multitude of unseen ways and anger will eat behavior modification for breakfast. Jesus wants to transform our hearts until what comes out of us is transformative. He starts with changing the core identity, changing the core values, the core convictions. Why does Jesus say all of these things? It's a big deal. Everybody gets angry, Danny. Yeah, but when it goes to contempt, now we've crossed the line. Why does he do it? Because he is intimately aware of our capacity for darkness. He, he wants his followers to know that Part of worship is not just hands raised, clapping, song sung, attendance at church. That part of worship is living with reconciled relationships. Part of that, he says, in fact, don't bring your offerings. Like, like, like stop doing religious duty until you go reconcile with people that have harmed you or you've harmed them. He's saying your religious rituals are less important to me than you living in reconciled relationships. Jesus, think about this real quick. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is that about? Jesus has come to reconcile humankind, to make a way, to build a bridge so that we can be reconciled with a holy, perfect God. God loves reconciliation so much that he sent his only son to reconcile us back to God. And maybe the person who is at odds with you is right, and maybe they're wrong, and I'm sure you think they're wrong. Come on, can I get a witness, somebody? And Jesus would say, it doesn't matter. Go and do the work of reconciliation first because that's what God does and that's what love requires. And the invitation from Jesus is not, hey, everybody, I want you to work really hard at avoiding murder. Like, try really hard not to say racha or fool and you're like, Psh, I got that, but I can say everything else? No, 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 no. His invitation is actually, lean in, lean in. His invitation is actually, die to your ego. Die to yourself and the kingdom of selfishness that we all live in, in in this country. Live in a kingdom reality and just recognize I cannot, by the force of my own tremendous will, control what people say, control what people do, control the line at HEB or the security line. And when I'm sitting there going, is she really pulling out her checkbook right now? Come on, somebody. <laughs> Sorry, checkbook users. The rest of us are like, dude, just chip it, bro. It's a moment of shame for Danny. Sometimes I'm at the HEB line, and I think, checkbook writers. <sighs> My own mother is one of these people. And I have a little a modicum of contempt. Like, man, if they would just learn how to chip this baby. 
I know that all of you are perfect and you have no thoughts like this pass through your mind. Die to yourself, live in kingdom reality, which is to say, I cannot control what happens around me. I live in God's kingdom, not mine. I can let go of everything that is not in my control and I can actually will the good for the people around me as Christ comes to live in my heart, as his spirit transforms me slowly over time. The, the, the fruit of the spirit, as I keep in step with the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, and the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, gets born in me, I can actually begin to, not by nature, but by the nurturing hand work of the Holy Spirit, I can start to love people around me and especially as he'll say, at the back end of this passage, those who have harmed me, those who are my, quote, enemies. I can especially show them kindness and love because Jesus is not saying here, if, you're, if you have a brother or sister who has a problem with you, manage your emotions so you don't feel anger. Come on, man, that ain't what he's saying. Contempt avoidance is not love. Willing the good for another person is how love gets, gets rolling. And that's very complicated and very com uh, complex because I know that there are people in your life that have wronged you, harmed you, cheated on you, said terrible things, stolen from you. I get it. I've had all that happen as well. But love seeks reconciliation. And if we're not oriented towards that, Lesson one, if we're not oriented towards that, if we're not open to it, if we're not seeking it out in our significant relationships, then we should not kid ourselves that we are obeying and following Jesus. We're not. That's what he would say. We cannot control outcomes, but we can offer up our hearts, which is why Paul says in Romans 12, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Meaning it, it might not be possible, but if it is, and as far as it depends on you, you can only control your response. Live at peace with all people. This is how Paul is fleshing out this teaching here from Jesus. Nothing expresses the reality of the kingdom more than when we say, forgive me, or I forgive you. Jesus came, offers his life up as a ransom to reconcile us to God, and he says, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as much as yourself. Jesus is more interested in you having reconciled relationships than he is about your religious duties. Amen? So, Father, um, this is tough. This stuff is tough, Lord. And I just pray, I just pray, God, that we would not concede ahead of time these tough sayings. In John 6, Jesus gives hard sayings and Many of his own disciples turned around and walked away. And he looks at, he looks at Peter and the, and the others and he says, are you guys going to walk away as well? To which Peter says, where should we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. I pray that that idea would grip our hearts, that we would not just concede ahead of time. This is not about our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone. This is about our sanctification, this daily process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus, I pray that some of us would, would be conscientious enough to go grapple with these next five teachings, that we would, we would pay attention to our hearts as we read through it, that we would, we would lean into your spirit and God, God, do your work in me. Holy Spirit, let your fruit be born in me by the Spirit's power as I walk with Jesus. Make me more and more and more like Jesus. I pray that you're best over these folks hearing this, and I pray it all in Jesus' name. Everybody says amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys.
Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.